0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast and the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 24th of January 2022 and this this episode 239. On today's Dispatches podcast I talked to historian and author Dr John Burke about his history of County Roscommon in the Irish Republic during the Great War. His study covers the county through the First World War, the War of Irish Independence and the following Civil War. John spoke to me from his home in the Irish Midlands.
1: John, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Before we start, could you tell us about yourself and how you became interested in Roscommon during the period of the Great War and after?
2: Well, uh, thanks for having me, Tom. Uh, I suppose my interest in Roscommon stemmed from an interest in in other things. I did a PhD in a university in in Galway City here in Ireland, and that PhD was on the town of Athlone and its environs during the 1912 to twenty three period. So from that... After the PhD was done, I wanted to get it published. I spoke with a few publishers. One of those publishers happened to be Four Courts Press, who published this book, and they said they weren't all that interested in Athlone, but they liked how I did it and would ask me if I could do something similar for Roscommon. They were bringing out a whole series. There's one ostensibly for every county in the country. I think 11 have been published so far. So I suppose Roscommon, my interest in it, I am local to it in, in part. I'm from the town of Athlone. The West part of which used to be part of County Roscommon, and a lot of people still think it is. <clears throat> they think the River Shannon divides the the counties, the provinces, the dioceses, the whole lot. But local government um, acts sort sure. of scuppered all that in 1898. But I'm local enough to the area to know it well, and to have the I uh, suppose the background of a throne and the PhD in the revolutionary period. It was a natural. A natural, yes. Oh, my next question
1: leads on nicely. Is where exactly is Roscommon relative to Ireland?
2: Right, so if you're looking at the map of Ireland, the southernmost part of Roscommon, uh, where Athlone town lurks, is right in the middle. So it's the most, I suppose, uh, it's the start of the west of Ireland. You look at the River Shannon coming up through the middle of the country, you meet Athlone halfway up there. And then you see something kind of like a a large ice cream cone on the west side of that shannon going up. That's kind of the shape of the county. So it's kind of the most
1: eastern of the western counties in inverted commas. It's really where the west of Ireland is. What was it like in the early 20th century in terms of its geography, politics, demography and religious composition?
2: Well, I suppose Roscommon, was common, like a lot of western counties, was agricultural. Now, you look at um, rurality ratings, I suppose, or percentages of rurality, i.e. how many people lived outside of urban centres, largely speaking. And Roscommon was the second most rural county in the country after Leitrim, which uh, butted up to the, the north-eastern side of, the, of, of County Roscommon. You're talking about, about 91% of people lived in what would be a rural area. The towns were very small. They were shrinking in large part, apart from Boyle, which is a town of the north of Roscommon, which had a, a large enough stand of British Army troops, which kept the population there artificially inflated. But the county town itself was dropping way below 2000 people so that's the size of a town that you're looking at it's a very small town for the for what was the second biggest other towns then you're talking mostly 15 1200 down into the quickly into the 100 700 odd people so the vast majority of people looked to the land for their living urban settlements were really in large part you could nearly reduce them to being meeting places for farmers to sell their goods there were market towns a lot of these places so the place was rural very much uh, uh, agriculturally oriented. Now, if you're looking at the type of people who live there from the point of view of, say, the religious denomination, you're talking 97.6% Roman Catholic. After that, you got about 2% uh, Protestant Episcopalian, and then all the, the others in there, the Methodist Presbyterians and some of the smaller uh, sects. That's around 1911, that's the last that sentence. Um, <clears throat> if you're looking then to see, I suppose, where the, with me, uh, for the um, political composition... Yeah, the political composition of Roscommon like a lot of Western countries, was based on land. Now, what I mean is, basically, the politicians, if they were to be successful, had to focus on agricultural issues. Now, the main agricultural issue, and it's almost a, a stereotype of Ireland, was the need to get the land off, these landlords and land grabbers and all these very large and wealthy people who retained thousands of acres, rented them out for what we seen as exorbitant rents and very meanly and very grudgingly sold them on, often at prices that only certain individuals could pay, often people who already had another profession who then were just sort of what they call jobbing in land. So you had everyone from RIC men, the policemen, to to publicans, to doctors, getting into a bit of farming because it could be lucrative. And then outside of that, you had all these people who needed the land for the very most basic things, basic settlements to sustain them. They weren't able. So politics in Roscommon was hinged on trying to get the land and the ownership of land more uh, equitable, a rather more equitable equitable spread. So what you had in the politicians of Roscommon were, I suppose, the, the two constituencies that comprised it. You had uh, Roscommon South, which was a man called J.P. Hayden. He was a newspaper owner, as many of the MPs at the time were. It's a great way to get your word around and, of course, to, I suppose, <laughs> taint, <laughs> taint the general view of yourself in your favour. Um, he ran the, what's called the Roscommon Messenger, which was a paper in the county town. He also ran a larger paper in it, the adjoining county of Westmeath, but he made his reputation on being function and centre land agitation especially in the first decade of this. so a lot of this land agitation took the form of violent conflict or protest especially around 1907 1908 so what you have there is literally thousands of people mobilizing to try and grab land seize it for sale and uh in, in so doing they did have uh, some um some success shall we say various land acts were passed especially the ones in 1903 and then one in 1909 um this congested districts board was set up to try and it was entice landlords to give it the land, which they could send hopefully parcel out and sell in, in reasonable fashion. Um so he would have been at the, the forefront of that in the North of Roscommon, you had a chap called JJ uh, O'Kelly. Um, he was largely unwell from 1900 onwards. He didn't do a whole lot. He had a very, very interesting previous career, very, um, well-travelled man, very important in Irish Republican circles, but whatever happened to him while abroad, he became quite unwell around 1900 and largely inactive politically. So somebody else had to step in, and the guy who stepped in was a guy called John Fitzgibbon. He was an MP for East Mayo, which again, voted up to that county, and he was known as a staunch and solid land man, all right? But both these men were seen at the forefront of the land agitation in the West of Ireland. Now, by 1910, when the Parliament uh, in Britain was set up, the uh, I suppose, to to, to take counter to take advantage of the Irish numbers these two men reconciled themselves to what was home rule they sought instead to turn their focus to trying to get an Irish legislature in Dublin and the land issue started to reduce in importance especially when the third home rule Bill started to come into um, being around 1912 so politically you're talking about most of all the motivation
1: coming from the land and the majority's need to get their hands on a viable economic plot. You say that Roscommon was quite a poor area in Ireland at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, yeah.
2: Um, Now it varied because the county itself is the most eastern part of the western province. Normally when you're talking about poverty in Ireland you're talking about the west of Ireland, the southwest and the very northwest. Invariably the levels of poverty met in those areas starkly and more obviously. Um, diff- different than when you might see in pockets in the eastern part of the country. Now, in Roscommon itself, it was good and bad. The most eastern part of Roscommon was not that bad vis-a-vis or in comparison to what was known as Castlereagh Union, which would have been kind of the big chunk of the most western part of the of the county that, that would uh, butt up against Mayo when Mayo then, of course, hits off the Atlantic Ocean. What you have is a disparity. Too many people living on too few acres that were non-viable and little or no prospect of them getting... I suppose what you might term a, a fighting chance to make it sustainable. Now, one of the main problems with that was that from maybe about 1901 to 1911, over 11,000 people emigrated from Roscommon, never to return, because they recognised there's not a lot for us here. It's an agricultural county. To succeed in agriculture, you need land. Land isn't coming our way. We need to get out. You also had what, of course, in Ireland we call the, sort of the Spalpines, these migratory labourers. And in this country, you'd have four counties that were very obvious on the ground in Britain especially um, during harvest season. Donegal, Mayo, Galway and then Roscommon. So you'd have literally thousands of people from those areas mostly young men migrating to Britain to take advantage of seasonal work That then come back and hopefully be able to maintain a homestead and everybody then had their, their mind I suppose on eventually getting enough money to buy or getting the getting the chance that was needed but um in a lot of ways, Roscommon, the 19, early 20th century wasn't presenting a very prosperous face and it had dropped its population to the lowest level since 1830, with broken lower than 100,000 the first time in over 80 years. So. It wasn't looking up, we put it that way.
1: So, How did the men and women respond, or how did the men and women in Roscommon respond to Britain's entry into the Great War in August 1914? Now, The Great War in Ireland, in a lot of ways, has to be looked at in the context of Home Rule. From 1912
2: to 1914, Home Rule Bill was working its way through the House of Commons. I'm sure your listeners are aware that a lot of the time it would go through the Commons, but the Lords would block it. Now, they obviously only had the, the right to block it three times before it was kicked over their heads and made law. But that length of time, between the bill coming in in 1912 and it being passed was predicted to be somewhere around two years. So you are talking about May 1914, June 1914. Most people in Ireland expected to get the Home Rule passed and enacted. Now, obviously, there were a lot of things going on to the continent during the summer, when it eventually the war was declared. Uh, People were quite positive about the war, not perhaps because, uh, as might sometimes be stereotypically stated, sort of this war euphoria, this love of the war that often brought great economic benefits and you know a lot of it was because they were told by their mps if you support the war home rule will be enacted the war is going to be short anyway sure by the end of the year we're going to have our own parliament in dublin but you have to support britain if you don't support them they'll think how can we give home rule to a country that won't support us in our most dire time so therefore the act doesn't get enacted ireland is back where it was with the first two home rule bills in the 19th century nearly nearly but not quite enough People were supporting it in large part because the politics dictated it. And they listened to their MPs, at least at that stage. Now, when you talk to the, when you talk to them, when you read the police um, reports from around August and September, they make it clear that people were very much for the British and the French in it. They didn't like it. The, they thought that it was a just war, and put it in that way. Um, there was, of course, straight away problems, it was on the ground with price inflation. Uh, there were also problems, and Ross Common would be very attuned to this with... The consequence of demand, the war economy, the demand for more goods, more produce, a lot of the people who were holding and hoarding lands found greater reason to hold and hoard them for longer, get more livestock onto them, feed the army. Athlone at the bottom of uh, Roscommon probably held five, 6,000 troops in training at, at various times. So this is a hungry maw that will take everything Roscommon will give it. The problem, obviously, then is that the people who need the land, the poorest, have been told by their MPs to support the war, they were being told, hang on a second, but the, the grazers are hoarding the land. We're yet again been told to wait. You know, our lives, they only happen once. We want equity now. Patience was always been asked. There's an Irish phrase that's called them um, uh, Mara too fair, live horse, and you will get grass. So it's just the basic thing is we know you're starving, but if you just hang on a bit longer, you'll eventually get the grass you need. People at the start of the war could buy into that because, as you know yourself, the predictions were quick war, over by Christmas, everybody go home, we, it'll be fine. It was the prolongation of the war then, and the exacerbation of the existing issues in Roscommon, that started to have a very serious effect on people's views of their politicians, their predictions for the future, and their need to
1: perhaps to look in a different direction. And just as, as an aside, did the county actually have relatively high recruitment levels in the Army, sort instead of in 1914-15, party due to poverty um no, no. Uh, i suppose to, to give you a short answer on it um, there
2: wasn't a lot in the way of recruitment for economic reasons. which wasn't unusual and going to the army wasn't exactly lucrative there were some uh, there were some families that had a tradition especially in places like Athlone and Boyle that they'd be you know shall we say garrison towns and garrison families who would join up for sort of atavistic reasons almost you know Um, There are some, there's a ward family in Roscommon Town, from what I remember, eight members have joined. Uh, But overall, probably trying to pick through all the false statistics that were thrown up by people who were both pro and anti-war, you're only talking probably about 500 people joining up to the middle of the 1915. Now, there was an awful lot of propaganda around that. The Irish Parliamentary Party MPs, John Hayden, that I mentioned, he tried to give the impression that Roscommon Town itself was exceptional for recruitment and for support of. There were RIC men in the town who were said to be, you know, grabbing recruits by the neck, sort of, in you go. Boyle was, Boyle Athlone and uh, Castle uh, the ta- it's a town, a smaller town in the west of Roscommon, were at various points told or are described as the best recruiting towns in the United Kingdom per head of population. Now, at times they were vying for this at the same time. Um, also, Sometimes the propaganda would use very very uh, ambiguous terminology, like similarly similarly circumstanced towns haven't given as many people. I'm not sure exactly what that meant. You know, was that population? Was that the way they look at the world? The the, the, the political view? You know, I don't know. But no, generally first few weeks you got a bit of a bump. It very quickly plateaued. Probably by the end of October 1915, they started to or 1914 they started to struggle, and uh, subsequent to that, then. Uh, some of your listeners might be aware of the various recruitment drives that were undertaken in Ireland to try and beat off the threat of conscription. A lot of these drives were staged in Roscommon. The problem with them was very straightforward in a lot of ways. They got gentry individuals and um, well heeled army men to stand up on podia and to tell all the farmers that were in Roscommon that you need to go and fight for a country, um, England, Britain, um, because that's your duty. Now, obviously, a lot of these people were well-versed in their own history. (laughs) They thought this was uh, a rather unusual um, uh, sort of an approach, an incongruous approach to tape for the audience. And it took a long time for even some of the more, shall we say, hibernophile gentry to understand we can't just get up in front of farmers who we've been basically screwing over for decades and say, oh yeah, we'll give you some nice stuff uh, eventually, but you know, go and fight for your country. They're saying it's not my country. Another problem was that a lot of what the suppose the local papers propagandized with would be maybe the experiences of uh, families like the Dufranes. So this was Lord Dufresne. A lot of those very well healed individuals went on to the continent. Some of them died. But whilst this is the sort of the proposed, shall we say, as an ideal way to support Britain, most people in Roscommon remember the Dufranes only for 10 years earlier having a massive um, tens of thousands of acres that staged or held or, or hosted a massive rent strike for over a year because he refused to sell his land. So it was the same person, just 10 years later, standing up there saying, do what you're told. And they're saying, hang on, I remember 10 years ago, we asked you for land. You wouldn't give it to us. And now you're telling us what to do. You know, there was a big issue there. Now, uh, around 19, later 1915, they started to try, at least, to bring the congested district boards into it. So a lot of these recruiters said, we're going to talk to the congested district board. And if you enlist, we're hoping that they will use your enlistment as a top priority criterion for you getting land when you get back. Now, this was, in the first instance, a lot of rubbish. They were talking, they're extemporising, basically. Now, they did append it as a criterion sometime around April 1916. But by that stage, I suppose the um, a lot of the recruitment speakers had uh, no, what's the word for it? They had no credibility, no credibility. The problem was, if you get no recruits and the war was wearing away at the total men at the front, the British government was looking to say, how do we replace the, the waste of war, as they often mention? and they start to eye up recruitment. So you get all these rumours starting to spread. So the Militia Ballot Act was the first rumour, the local newspapers say, God, you can't help but notice there's a hell of a lot of young men going to immigration agents. They want to get out of here. Boats, apparently, from immigration agents in Athlone around November 1915 were completely booked out. We're told that Roscommon men were leaving en masse, were trying to get out. So obviously, the British government brought in a ban on immigration, but of course, people still tried. The press... And most of the Irish press, uh, really, and have to be frank here, were supporting the war effort. They would try and propagandise perhaps the people if they did try to emigrate maybe via Liverpool. They were going to meet a horrible crowd of people over there wouldn't have any time for their coward. Even some of the most, shall we say, Irish nationalist type newspapers. And it's one of the problems we have in Ireland is that we think if you supported the Great War, you must have supported Britain and you can't have been an Irish nationalist or you can't be an Irish Republican. And it's never that simple. These newspapers had some of the most nationalist Irish people managing and editing them. So when they started to indicate that you can do Ireland a massive favour here, but don't show your cowardice, people thought, hang on a second, in modern day more so, contemporaries were able to get that it's kind of a syncretism that they could get their heads around it. We have a problem. But it wasn't nearly as clear-cut as we like to make it. And a lot of what we view that, and you might know this, in the last few years in Ireland, we've tried uh, to try to rewrite the war in a context of how it was seen more at the time, rather than how we think it should have been seen after the Republic was formed and after all that, especially, you know, the way that Irish history has developed in the, in the hundred years or so since. And context was very important. So you had very, Irish nationalist newspapers telling people you should enlist, the war is important, you will get home rule, you will get a better chance, at least in the first few months of the war, that um, the British government will give us
1: what we what we deserve in large part, and that's a meaningful measure of self-government. So, out of the blue comes the Easter Rising in Dublin in April 1916. How did this event shape views of people in the county?
2: Well, I suppose, again, building on from the context that I spoke about, <clears throat> You have 1916, April, you have over a year and a half of the wars. The short war is no longer a, a, a lie that people will believe. Um, land and issues have started to bubble up. It's been too long. there have been a lot of price inflation. People are suffering. They've been told they have to enlist. They're feeling a, a degree of pressure. That makes them view not only their own politicians with greater contempt, which is fine. You know, politicians <laughs> sometimes deserve the contempt they're viewed with, especially when they're talking out of both sides of their mouths and treating people like they're slightly dumber than the animals that they, 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 they herd. But what you have by 1916, April, is the threat, of course, of a conscription in January 1916. And then by April 1916, the Easter Rising, which some people see as the, the bubbling up of, uh, of, of political Tension, especially in some of the more ideological men and women who, in the Irish volunteers who, who formed and were the vanguard of the Easter Rising, created, I suppose, the political explore, or eruption, this kind of energy that maybe Ireland needed. Because a lot of the time, Irish people uh, very happily manifested their distaste with their politicians, but they tended to stick with them. The Irish Parliamentary Party had been dominant party for about 30 years. And prior to that, it was all a little bit disparate. So by 1916 April, you can understand that some people saw the saw the boom coming. In Roscommon, however, they didn't participate in large part. There were individuals who went there who later became important activists in the uh, the local War of Independence or the local uh, instalment of the War of Independence. But invariably, Roscommon town or Roscommon county was quiescent, as the, even the RAC said. You know, it was actually even hard to find people getting agitated on the day or during that week of Easter week. Athlone, at the bottom of it, was seen to be probably the most volatile place, but even at that, the volatility wasn't wasn't exceptional. We think in Roscommon, all that happened was that a flag for the Irish Republic was probably hoisted on Roscommon Castle, which is just a large room outside the county town in Roscommon. And other than that, they think that um, a couple of flags might also have been taken down the Union Jacks and possibly... Um, damaged in Boyle, which is the town at the north where the, the garrison is. But other than that, virtually nothing. The problem then is, why did the British decide to send seven to eight hundred troops into the county to start harassing people who had done nothing? And this was a ma- major misstep. Obviously, their biggest misstep was executing. They engaged in exceptional repression in Dublin. They made martyrs in the space of a, a couple of weeks. They couldn't have done it better if they if they'd sat down and worked it out. But um, it was part of the problem, probably that they didn't. Now they. Roscommon instalment saw large buildings taken over in the larger towns. People interrogated very roughly. And disproportionately, Roscommon had the sixth highest number of arrests per head in any county in the country, despite even the police report saying it was the quietest. So how can you be sixth highest for arrest if you're the quietest county? So what you have then is this disparity in action, which a lot of people says, well, they're just attacking us because we're Irish. We're just attacking us because we're, you know, there's no actual thought here. There's a They're degrading us, in large part, out of habit. So when the uh, arrests started to happen, a lot of innocent people were taken in. A lot of people supported those innocent men. And needless to say, this started to see people mobilise in numbers in support of what then became sort of Republican prisoners. Now, a lot of these guys who were arrested had literally nothing to do with active Republicanism, active Irish nationalism. They were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. They might have been interrogated by just the wrong soldier by the wrong policemen. A lot of them were released fairly quickly, but some of them then were sent over to Britain. They went to places like Barlini, they went to places like uh, Rusk to Wandsworth. They went up and down the country, obviously spreading them out, trying not to have them all together. Eventually in Frangok, a lot of them did get together, but what you have is, I suppose, a, a disproportionate reaction, completely at odds with the, with the facts as people saw them. So, a lot of what are called advanced nationalists in Roscommon, those who might have had a hand act or part if given the chance started to agitate and promote and propagandise, <clears throat> that a lot of these people have been taken. It was just another example of Britain treating Ireland wrong. The people in uh, the Easter Rising were executed, when if you look at South Africa, the level of executions weren't anything like it. That even now, despite the fact that we're the closest island to Britain, they still have this in the marrow of their bones, contempt for Ireland, and that we have to break away from them. After literally hundreds of years, they're still doing the same. We can't get them to understand, to require and demand, and are entitled to our own independence. So from 1916 onwards, you start to see the, the bubbling up of, I suppose, people, what some of our historians have called a uh, sort of dangerous notions, start to enter their heads. Uh, some of them are about sort of big picture separation from Britain. Others are about small picture maybe we should get rid of this MP here. He's not done anything for us for the last two years. We're hungry, we've got no land. Now he's letting English come in and kill Irish people in Dublin. He's allowing people to be arrested. He's allowing his constituents to be ex- to, to be um, deported. He's doing nothing other than saying, I'm in Westminster, speaking with the British, we'll sort it all out eventually. They don't like what has become, I suppose, in their view, the IPP's passive approach, this kind of pandering approach. And Because uh, for a party like the Irish Parliamentary Party, you might know Charles Stuart Parnell, The land war. It came from a kind of a muscular, forceful drive against the British um, authority. By 1912 14, as the war went on, it started to seem like they were almost been neutered by their association with the British. And people started to look at their politicians and go, don't think the Irish Parliamentary Party is the party to help us out. They can't do anything other than tell us to support the war. And do people in Roscommon start to support Sinn Féin? Yeah, <clears throat> now they did. Sinn Féin itself had a kind of a very weak start in Roscommon. There was uh, probably a small party in 1907 in Castlereagh and another one in 1909 in Athlone, but they didn't last any time because, you know, that sort of advanced nationalism wasn't popular because at that point the Irish Parliamentary Party looked like they were on and up. They were going to get into a majority position in Westminster. They looked like they had a lot of power politically to get done what the Irish people wanted done. So Sinn Féin, in its early years, wasn't popular. But by 1916, as I mentioned, the Irish Parliamentary Party was no longer viewed like that. we have seen as something that perhaps pandered too much for the uh, the empire, not enough for Ireland, which the empire. Now, so, when you have Sinn Féin, however, by 1916, Sinn Féin wasn't cohesive. That's what you have of a whole lot of individuals who might propose or follow what's called, again, a Sinn Féin policy. And that was a little bit disparate as well at the time. Some There were some with a very clear view of what it was, others perhaps not so much. But what started to bubble up towards <clears throat> the end of 1916 was a very obvious move away from the Irish Parliament. And when you move away from one political body and you're a politically active person, naturally you have to find another harbour. So Sinn Féin started to pop up. And By the end of 1916, Roscommon played a very important role. And it all came down to the gentleman I previously mentioned, the MP for Roscommon North, J.J. O'Kelly, who did a whole lot of nothing due to poor health. He died in December 1916 and uh, it was then and in North Roscommon, Roscommon North that Sinn Féin backed and Sinn Féin supporters saw an opening to build on what they saw as a, a, a changing mindset. Try a by-election. See if that will help us understand if we're correct, if we're reading it correctly, that the Irish people are moving away from the Irish Parliament. And Roscommon and the Nor- Roscommon North by-election were very important for, for uh, one reason. There's a very strong sort of a spine in Irish republicanism that thought that politics tainted everything. What you needed to do was grab a gun and shoot everybody, (laughs) you know, shoot your way to independence. Now, obviously, there's a problem with that in Ireland because there's a mismatch here. There's a David and Goliath, you know, between the Irish and the British state. So really, at that point, there wasn't a whole lot of support for a mass insurrection or a mass rebellion. Uh, Easter Rising told people there was a small number. It only popped up in Dublin, a couple of other places in Escorty, in Mead, Galway. It wasn't a pan-national rebellion. So what the by-election in 1917, as it transpired in Roscommon, taught a lot of these people was that actually you can bring a lot more people with you with a more moderate political message. Now we're not saying you don't go and grab arms and eventually go and engage in war, but what we're saying is you, you start to bring the people with instead of forcing your view upon them. So in Roscommon, February, that was a bit of a sensation in North Roscommon. Now, the man who was elected was a guy called uh, George Noble, Count Clunkett. His son had been executed uh, as one of the leaders of the 1916 Rising. He wasn't a great candidate himself. He said a whole lot of, you know, silly things. He wasn't a politician per se, which is probably not uh, not an insult. But at the same time, he wasn't, even when you read some of his uh, speeches, he, he wasn't very clear on his own message. He wasn't a Sinn Féin MP. He was backed by people who supported Sinn Féin, by the Irish Republican Brotherhood, by a whole lot of disparate groups who came behind him, and others who later became famous like Michael Collins, etc. But he, I suppose in one degree, did set the ball in motion, not only because he thought, or the the, the election thought, a lot of the staunch Republicans that politics could work, but he abstained from Westminster, so he wouldn't take his seat in Westminster. So it was the first step towards the Irish letting the British know that the House of Commons wasn't seen as the place for the problem, do it ourselves. So Roscommon was at the vanguard of that. So the irony of it was the reaction of the British to Easter 1916 in Roscommon was wrong because it was disproportionate. It was against the, the evidence. It led to, a, I suppose, a, a change in mindset, which then fed into a, a by-election, which then taught them the, the immoderate Republicans that maybe we actually can be a political as well as a military force, and set in motion basically the growth of Sinn Féin, which as it became and we moved on to the general election in 1918, of course, when Sinn Féin won a majority, that uh, basically obliterated the parliamentary party. A lot of that started in Roscommon. It, it, There's an obvious, from this distance, movement in that
1: direction. And a lot of it arose from the fact that after 1916, people thought a big change was. So after the end of the war, we have what is known as the War of Irish Independence, the Anglo-Irish War or the Irish Revolution, depending on your pick. Your book describes the military and political campaign of Republicans in the county. Can you tell us about them and what they did and how people in Roscommon were involved in this uh, two-year war?
2: Now, I'll try and and distill it as much as I can. After the general election in 1918, um, there's a political mandate. The Irish Republic is formed in January 1919. Dáil Éireann, the Irish Arachthus or the Irish uh, Parliament, basically severed ties with Britain, at least, you know, as I say on paper. Now... There was a lot more that needed to be done. Initially, the Paris Paris Peace Conference was seen as a place where the Irish delegates could go. So people thought this political solution would be something they'd be able to get on board with. The problem was that it became very quickly apparent that the Americans weren't interested, the Brits wouldn't help for obvious reasons. So what you had is the peace conference doors closed in part. So moving people towards the other solution, if political didn't work, obviously you have to then look at violence. Now violence a lot of people in Ireland were very clear that in um, and places in and so Common where was Athlone and Boyle, huge garrisons, at least in the bottom of the town in Athlone, people were very aware of the presence of the British. They remember 1916, its aftermath, how, how large numbers of soldiers could trawl an area. So it took a long time for violence to be perpetrated in Roscommon. It was actually in the middle of 1920 before anyone, shall we say, of the Crown Forces was killed um, in in July. Now, when that started, and it's, it's it's not entirely clear whether their deaths were, were were intentional. It did seem to set in motion a move towards more confrontational activity. Now, when you're talking about those who engaged in that confrontational activity in Roscommon, it's very small numbers, probably low three figures. The reasons for that are obvious. Um, not everybody's built for it, apart from anything else. A lot of other people have more important day-to-day things in the birth commas to deal with, you know, living, rearing a family, etc. Now, after the war, people were being demobilized. There was a, a degree of tension there with soldiers who were let go. Some of them did assist what were um, the Irish volunteers in, in combating or taking on the British. Uh, but invariably, what the Irish War of Independence is often typified by were flashbottle on in Rosscombe, the quick, short term ambushes that claimed, in the context of the Irish War, a lot of lives, context of. Many other wars, thankfully, well, you know, it's great to have in some ways to have a war of independence that wasn't, uh, as the what's his name, Stephen Pinker says, a, a hemoclysm of literal, you know, bloodletting. Um, Roscommon was probably the seventh most violent county in Ireland um, by the end of the war. But a lot of that violence, a lot of that death happened in Four Mile House in October 1920. And then just over the period of a couple of days in March at uh, the, the ambush in Scramogue and another one at Kiju. So in between those, you're talking about maybe 15 people dying out of the total, which was in the you know in the, the well the low 30s really. Now when you uh, look at the Irish War of Independence, it's it's easy to think again if you're ideologically driven that all these people were very much looking for the republic and that it was that which drove them. But in large part, British the British approach to the war fed again as it had previously fed the antagonism because again. And on an awful lot of occasions, they targeted the wrong people subsequent to these ambushes. Or they engaged with them in such a way as to be, obviously, exceptionally um, rough. (laughs) Let's put it, well, actually, exceptionally rough. Especially when they brought in what were the RIC Auxiliary and the Black and Tans. Now, the Black and Tans and both the RIC Auxiliary were known for indiscriminate violence. Now, there has been a lot written about who they were, why they did what they did. But in Roscommon, you can read the sources. It's obvious that their reputation was terrifying. Where they were, the Auxiliaries in Roscommon were based in Boyle, in the north of the county, which meant that that town was reasonably quiet, (laughs) it makes sense. And the Black and Tans were more spread about, we'd say. They were based in Athlone, but they did engage in sorties into the county. Probably more famously, after an ambush at Ratra, in which two Crown forces died, they um, threatened to burn the entire town of Baladrine, which which you mentioned. Now, Baladrine, it said, was saved, thankfully, uh, by bad weather, rain, stopped the conflagration spreading all but that was the point that was their that was their approach we know the ira or the irish volunteers later the ira shot these people but we're going to come in and burn your town down anyway because you're harboring them Um, we're just making that decision a lot of the time these guys were not local they didn't know what was going on so this kind of profligate um, decision of meeting up the violence was hardly hardly any good sometimes people wonder why the i suppose the war didn't descend into some sort of a pitched battle between the black and tans, shall we say, as they went into Balladrine to burn it, and the local IRA brigades, but that's not what the IRA were built for. They were a, go- a guerrilla um, warfare. That's what they could do. I don't think they would have been capable of engaging the black and tans because they were ex-soldiers, they had better training, they had better weapons. They were more mobile. At least, you know, in in, in moving in mass. Now, granted, the IRA had the knowledge of the terrain, the support of the people, but at the same time sort of any sort of conventional conflict in the middle of a town. A lot of the time it was nip and tuck. You try and, I suppose, get them when they least expected it, but not take them toe to toe because you simply hadn't got this capacity to do it. So in Roscommon, mostly guerrilla warfare, it did become quite violent, especially uh, in March and April 1921. And one of the reasons for that was the hanging of a guy called Paddy Moran in in Mount Joy. He was um, killed uh, by uh, by, uh, by the British because of his supposed involvement in Bloody Sunday which happened in November 1920 in Dublin when a lot of British army agents were assassinated now the, the funny thing about it is he was hanged for his part in, in that um, but was the wrong part he, he didn't actually uh, he didn't actually engage in the activities for which he was hanged he engaged in other activities but they still were able to on the basis just of uh, testimony from some soldiers which is obviously a little bit biased <laughs> you know unsurprisingly this, decided to hang him only a few days after that um there was an ambush at Kiju, and then subsequent to that, there was one at Scremog. Now, there had been ambushes up and down the county and in those areas previously, but somebody like Moran dying again for reasons that people thought just exemplified the British approach to the Irish. It sort of um, in, in, in enlivened uh, the, the, the Republican campaign, especially when, you know, places like Roscommon, they did know what was going on in other parts. So your countries like Cork and Tipperary and you know, Limerick and Kerry to a lesser extent, and they're getting on with it. And these are, Republicans in North Common said, Oh look, the lads in Munster are fighting for their country. You haven't killed anyone in months, you know? And a lot of times the reason they didn't kill anyone in months was very simple. They had an ambush, the British reaction was so severe, they all went to ground. They didn't want to come back up again until they thought that their heads were okay. And at times, of course, they were piecing together a strategy, not really from a military point of view, but from what common sense they had, the the information, the ammunition they had, the land as it was, even subsequent to the war, when criticism was going left, right, and center and a lot of them come in Roscommon's way for the uh, inactivity at lar- in large parts of uh, for of the war period. Even, I suppose, the National Army Inspector, so to speak, came down and said, look, at-. I went down to Roscommon, it was 200 miles I drove, I saw two ambush points. It's a wonder they got anything done, you know. It was a bad and hard place to actually set up the IRA in the way that they need to set up to take on the British. So the fact that they got anything done in large part was to their credit. But really, guerrilla warfare, two years... There was um, a lot of animus in certain locations, especially around Castlereagh, And one of the reasons for that was there was what's called the Castlereagh Murder Gang. So this was uh, RIC men who had a lot more local knowledge perhaps than and, and any of the crown, other crown forces, the auxiliaries or the Black and Tans. And people sort of said they acted like bloodhounds for the other ground forces. So what you have was bringing them to the areas where they think the, uh, the IRA men are maybe shacking up the barns, the houses, whatever, sort of leading them and the worst one of them was probably sergeant james king he was known as the leader of the murder squad now he was a fairly despicable type of person as he was written of at least at the time now looking back trying to look for objective sources they're hard found obviously they're hard found but it's fairly clear that he would lead these crown forces into sort of localities indicate the correct house shoot people himself. there are numerous instances it's alleged that he beat up women and try and get information out of them uh, where their sons were etc and so on but it's probably no coincidence that um, when the truce was being declared or at least news of the truce was starting to filter through and sort of from the 8th of July 1921 onwards that the IRS went to get him and they got him on the morning of the truce at half 10 but the truce came in at 10, 12 midday there's been a lot of funny things written about it not funny peculiar maybe one of the more famous ones was Kevin Myers he's a former columnist at one of the newspapers over here he wrote about King as a kind of a paternal sort of fellow with his child going to mass and being gunned down by the ira and it's all made up it's all a lot of rubbish he wasn't um at all he was going to the barracks as he always did at 10 o'clock ish and that's where the ira got him and shot him you know and he was a there's no doubt about it he engaged in various activities that in the context of war which is what people have to understand here we can't invalidate ireland's war of independence just by even though it was small scale it, it was a war even the british admitted that um he was—he uh, was an enemy combatant, and he was shot dead, and it's just that simple. And um, he was an unpleasant individual, and maybe you think, subsequent to a truce, could you live with that guy walking down the street uh, when you're walking opposite so him? Possibly
1: you couldn't. And there were certain things that people couldn't let go, and he was one of them. So the final part of our story is what happens after the truce in 1921. Ireland sent into civil war. How did that conflict affect affect Ross and how did the IRA divide uh, on the ground? Yeah,
2: right. Now suppose if you are somebody who is enjoying a truce. The truce comes up especially if you're a non-combatant. You're in July June, August 1921. There's a lot of information in newspapers. People were very really social events, sporting events started to happen again. Simple things like farmers being able to drive their cattle down the road without being afraid of, you know, the uh, the British soldiers thinking it's an illegal cattle drive. Um, this even the crown forces there was a sense of the called bon ami in in the county. People had a let off. Now in a large part, there was a naivety and there was a lack of realism. The Some of the IRA were saying they defeated the British, the British were going to give them the Republic. A lot of these things weren't politically likely, to say the least. But people sort of lived in that space for maybe four or five months. There was thoughts of re-engagement on both sides. But at the same time, there was a sense, I think, that the war was over and that a new chapter, hopefully peaceful and political, was going to take effect. Now, obviously, in December... 1921, the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed. And in Roscommon, the political, uh, the political bodies, the individuals, uh, the showed an awful lot of the division that later fed that civil war. We had a couple of politicians in the north who had no interest in the Anglo-Irish Treaty at all, thought it was a, a, basically a betrayal of the republic. A lot of these people had signed up to fight for the republic, given an oath to the republic, and then all of a sudden they signed this other thing and expect us all to take it. And that was a big issue. So politically, it was a hot potato. But it's obvious as well, despite the political vote in Dail Eireann being so close—only seven votes or so. What you have is in Roscommon, a very obvious support for the pro-treaty side. And some of the newspaper men made it very clear. And the reason is because it'll stop the violence. It's not so much because the measure is a good measure. It's less than the Republic. It's not what we wanted. But let's be frank. Look around you here. Going into 1922. You start to see the British demobilizing. You start to see large barracks starting to empty. They're handing them over to the IRA. The RIC are leaving. You can take a sledgehammer to the, the, the British crown uh, arms if you want, you know. And there's a lot of this symbolic stuff going on that they're saying, look, isn't this better than what we had? So, you know, why would you decide to um, abandon the treaty despite its failures and its its limitations? Harry Boland was an MP for South West Common. He was initially for the treaty, then against it when he knew more about it. But his view was very simple. He said, You get the treaty position and you work it for as much as you can get. And even Home Rule, by, though by that stage completely sort of discredited, it was always seen as, yeah, we'll just get Home Rule. We know it's not very good, but when we have it, we can start to expand its remit a bit. So, Anglo Irish Treaty, maybe some very pragmatic political people saw it similarly. Now, in Roscommon, it was very obvious, <laughs> excuse me, despite their MPs being divided on the issue, that the people were very much for the treaty. Now, when it started to get a bit I suppose the technical term is a little bit hairy (laughs) when it's obvious that the IRA were the individual or the group that was going to drive the conflict. Roscommon people started to sort of wearily eye the allegiances of a lot of their previously, I suppose, um, celebrated heroes. So in the north, in Boyle, the man called Martin Fallon, who initially, though manning and sort of running the the military uh, barracks up there for the IRA, was anti treaty until he met a man called Sean McCone who actually held the barracks in Athlone. So Mac sort of convinced Fallon that maybe pro-treaty is the way to go, consequences of a war, you know, it's not what we want in Ireland, et cetera, and so on. So what you have is really most of the military in Roscommon, because of Mac Owen's intervention, uh, the military, the IRA military being pro-treaty, or at least on that side, their own personal views may be tamped down by their appreciation of the bigger picture. So what in Roscommon happened is a lot of the anti-treaty individuals from Mayo and Sligo drifted in to the north part of the county especially and they started to try and fight on behalf of the anti-treaty side. Now initially in Roscommon there wasn't a lot going on in a military sense and really when the the national army as it became i.e the army of the, the free state or the treaty supporting side it had a very quick run-up through the county in large part. It kind of, if you can picture kind of the ice cream cone it came out of Athlone pushed all of the anti-treaty troops either west or north into the north area, a very mountainous area called Rigna, and basically pinned them in. So you have only very small pockets of anti-treaty descent outside of those areas. And really, the conventional civil war in Ireland was finished in Roscommon. Probably, you talk about the end of July 9th, subsequent to that, you're dealing with very small scales. Now, the problem is that if you've got a small number of troops, as the anti-treaty IRA did in Roscommon, you've got a larger enemy, what do you do? Well, you maybe adopt similar tactics that you adopted during the war of independence you start targeting infrastructure cutting the railways blowing up trains taking down telegraph lines blowing up bridges trenching roads the problem is context it's fine if you're doing that to stop the british but if you're doing it to stop other irish people and you're continuing to discommod the 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 non-combatants they're going to start looking at you going hang on a second i understood you were doing it for the tommies but now that we've actually got all our own men largely speaking running the country i know you don't like the form of government but it's better than that and i need to get on my life and it's obvious as well from some testimony even from the anti-treaty side that they weren't all that happy with being ordered to destroy infrastructure you know and some of them made the very obvious point that people have been under a lot of pressure since 1914 the world war scundered an awful lot of their day-to-day made prices exceptionally difficult the war of independence again you're fighting a foreign occupying force you can kind of justify it but no basically you're telling them that no matter what they do no matter who they support it's more the same and it's known that some of the anti-treaty IRA actually left the IRA. Some of them went neutral, granted, they wouldn't join either side, but they thought the attack on infrastructure was going to blacken the name of the the IRA in the area, the anti-treaty IRA. And the new government in Ireland was able to make good propaganda mileage. They said, look at us, we're forming a government, forming departments, we're creating a, a national army, we're creating police, and all you have on the other side is this nexus of chaos. All the things we're trying to do we're trying to get goods to you. They're blown up the railway. We're trying to help you communicate with each other. They're taking down the telegraph lines. We're allowing you to get from A to B to go to school. They've blown up the bridge in the road. So a lot of it was the solidity and progress and constructive Irish free state government against this anti-treaty uh, chaos. And a lot of the people in Roscommon bought into that and the anti-treaty side didn't get the level of support um, that on, on the ground. Ideologically, there were still people who certainly preferred the republic, but a lot of them, I suppose, wanted them. The free state allowed that approximately, rather than the possible or ultimate republic, which didn't, of course, transpire until 1949. And finally, John, where can people learn more about your work and get your book? Now, the, the book itself is on all good online retailers, obviously. <laughs> the publisher is Four Courts Press. Um, the book itself, I don't think it comes in a, it's not in an e-version, but um, if you do, there's, I suppose it's easy, easy guess. The series itself is called the Revolution in Ireland series. It's still ongoing, 11 out so far. They want to have them all out by the end of 1923, if that'll happen, or 2023, if that'll happen, I do not know. There's an the obvious reason for that centenary. But it is, as I say, it's readily available, selling well, and uh, obviously, I think it's a good read. John, thank you very much for your time. Not at all, Tom, thank you.
0: You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code bis 21 nine five. Until next time.